Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retrospectating 1999 with a little movie called Bowfinger, as in Bobby Bowfinger, a Frank Oz joint. Matt, it's good to be with you here today. Yeah, but can we uh, hurry this up? Because I got to get to my Mindhead meeting after this. You know, I think when I saw this the first time, I had no idea what Scientology was. What was it even a big thing outside of a, uh, you know, the Hollywood cabal there? Like, did 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 more people know about Scientology than I was aware of in 1999? I mean, if you believe films like The Master and the you know the history of L. Ron Hubbard. It's been around since the fifties, right? I mean, maybe it didn't no, I, have necess- I, I know it's been around. I just, I'm just saying, like, did it have its ubiquity back then, or its sort of known menace back then? I wasn't that savvy about it in the late nineties myself. I think I understood the reference, but I didn't really know anything about it. I mean, what's interesting, kind of interesting about my history with this film is that I actually saw it for the first time when I was visiting L.A. I don't know. I felt this strange connection to this movie because I was actually in L.A at UCLA Film Camp in the summer of 1999, which is just as geeky as it sounds. <laughs> yep. So I felt very ensconced. In the, you know, I, I, I was pretty proud of myself being this high school student in L.A. going to film camp watching this movie about guerrilla filmmaking. But, um, yeah. but that's just a long way of saying that, that I, I understood what they were getting at, but I didn't really know any details about Scientology. And you know, Steve Martin maintains that Mindhead is not necessarily... Uh, a reference to Scientology so much as it is a reference to like a thousand different kind of like self-help or lifestyle kind of cults that were springing up in LA in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, Steve Martin, it seems has always had a interest in, in con men and, uh, in grifters, you know, Matt. So here's the thing about Bowfinger. When you put this on our list for retrospectating 1999, um, I was intrigued because this movie never made much of an impact on me. Mm-hmm. And I really am curious to hear why uh, this is uh, this is movie's been deemed worthy of inclusion. Well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm kind of getting the impression that this might be uh, that we might differ on this film a little bit, although I appreciate you you committing to it regardless. <laughs> I feel like we don't cover as many comedies as maybe we should. I feel like maybe that's uh, indicative of the fact that we're in a bit of a fallow period in terms of contemporary comedies. Or maybe I'm just not watching enough, um, you know, Netflix romantic comedies, which is apparently where the good stuff is these days. I'm, I'm feeling like a bit of an old man these days and that I just don't laugh as much as I feel like I used to know. Maybe it's because we're living in a particular... That's the saddest uh, thing I've ever heard <laughs> anyone say. There's, there's a lot of social upheaval, have, social upheaval happening these days. And I think when you get into your 30s, certain realities start to rear their, their uh, respective ugly heads. And I, I just don't laugh at, at comedies as often these days. And it's very refreshing to see something like Toy Story 4, for example, where I literally I like had this wonderful visceral physical reaction to that movie where I literally like laughed hard during it, mm-hmm. which was extremely pleasurable. So I think part of the reason that I latched onto this movie and really wanted to cover it was I was looking for an excuse to revisit it because I remembered it being a film that I had a just incredibly strong positive reaction to. Now, 
again, could have been because I was 16 and down in LA and at this film camp and, you know, around, you know, girls who wanted to talk about movies and stuff. And like, I was, I was just in a, I was in a particularly good place to be open to a film like this. And we went and screened it on the universal lot a month before it came out. So I actually okay. got to go see it in a universal screening room in July of 99. Well, it makes sense that this would have an imprint on you. Sure, then, sure, like, but I, I want to yeah, yeah. Sure, but I want to try and, you know, get a little more get a little deeper and more contextual than that so it's not just a a nostalgia thing because I think there is a lot more going on with this movie and I probably watch this movie, you know, once every couple of years at least. And it to me it still holds up. Getting to see it in that environment and of course it absolutely killed with that, you know, with a group group of kids who were predisposed to like something like this, especially because this is when Eddie Murphy was on his comeback upswing, right? Right after the Nutty Professor. Yeah, Nutty Professor, and then he sort of used that Nutty Professor to make kind of a series of not great movies, right? Like he makes Nutty Professor and then he goes Metro uh, he does the voice of Mulan. He does Doctor Doolittle, Holy Man, Life, and then Bowfinger. Exactly, and then Shrek almost immediately thereafter, right? Yes, and that kind of yes. takes him. I'm, I'm not arguing that any of these films are great. I'm just saying that no. this was the upswing, like between the Nutty Professor and then the Clumps. Shrek, you know, a lot of this has to do with his voice work, of course. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's going to be able to live off that Shrek money for the rest of his life. He was actually nominated for a BAFTA for his voice work in Shrek, which is kind of That's crazy. incredible. Yeah. No, no. I mean, but, but you're right. He was back in the bankable, humongous megastar uh, stratosphere at this point. Yeah. And sure. Steve Martin was already kind of like a bit of an elder statesman of comedy, right? Yes. I mean, they're not that far apart in age, but I do feel like they kind of somewhat come from different generations just you know like steve martin is always kind of associated with saturday night live even though i don't think he was ever actually an official cast member no but he hosted like i don't know 15 times in the first five years or something like that he's part of the pantheon whereas eddie murphy is debatably the biggest star to ever come out of saturday night live right yeah but they had never actually done anything together they had never been on screen together in this capacity so in a way this film was kind of an i mean that's how they sold the movie martin and Murphy together for the first time. Yes, indeed. And uh, it's it's interesting to look at it because I think this is the most interesting part of this conversation. This is sort of the end of an era for both of these guys. 100%. I think this is the end for Murphy, Martin, and Frank Oz to a certain... And that's part of the reason I wanted to cover this was I really feel like they have never... I'm not saying that this is any of their best film, but I don't think any of them have been as good since. Yeah, it's crazy. So I had an inkling, and I, I'm looking at both of their Rotten Tomato scores here. 81% for Bowfinger. Neither Eddie Murphy or Steve Martin have made a live-action movie that's better than this in the last 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that crazy? Exactly. This is, right. this is the end for them, and obviously same for Frank Oz as a director. Yep. You know, the 90s were pretty darn big for, for Steve Martin. He's one of the biggest comedic stars we had. This is sort of the, the, the cherry on top, and nothing would ever be the same. And I also think this is a kind of comedy that kind of went out of style right around the same time that these uh, this movie was made. So yeah. it's an interesting sort of uh, you know stake in the ground in terms of pre nine eleven comedies. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Well, let's let's look at these three guys individually. So yeah. I gotta say I gotta say up front. I am not the world's biggest Eddie Murphy fan, and I know that's a little bit of sacrilege to a pe- to people of a certain age. I think Forty Eight Hours is great. I think Trading Places is great. You know, I think Coming to America is fine. I, I got to say the Beverly Hills Cops movie, cop movies I feel are quite overrated, which I know is also kind of sacrilege. But I'm not the biggest fan. But I'll, I'll circle back to that in a second. I am a huge Steve Martin fan. Like he was kind of my guy during my childhood. I never ha- had much interest in Eddie Murphy. I never had much interest in Chevy Chase. All I was really into Steve Martin from a very young age. You know, if you just look back at the early part of his career, I mean, even starting with the Muppet movie, which is obviously his first time working with um, with Frank Oz, and, you know, into The Jerk, which is obviously his star-making performance, weird stuff like Pennies from Heaven and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which are really sort of interesting novelties. Uh, the Man with Two Brains was super formative for, you know, all of me with Lily Tomlin and Three Amigos, which is... Top 10 comedy of all time. It's an amazing movie. Roxanne is really interesting, and it's when he starts getting more into, you know, writing for himself 
and maybe even delving into something a little more dramatic. You know, My Blue Heaven, The Spanish Prisoner, something really interesting he does in the late 90s or the mid 90s before Bowfinger. But really the one for me where I feel like he just kind of brings it all together is L.A. Story. And that I feel like is quite possibly his funniest, maybe his best performance and just maybe just his all around best movie. Bowfinger almost kind of feels like a bit of a companion piece to that. Because if L.A. Story is satirizing the entire city, then Bowfinger is just kind of like satirizing its most important industry, right? Sure. But I think you're exactly right. After this, it's, I don't know, it's strange to say it's all downhill. Things are just never the same again. In some way, he's been chasing something or he's been eluding, you know, something has been eluding him for the last 20 years or so. I mean, he's still a legend. He'll always be a legend. He's hosted the Oscars two and a half times since this. And, uh, you know, he tours with with uh, Martin Short and plays the banjo and he's writing books. And, you know, there's still interesting things going on, you know, like Shop Girl, which is a movie that um, was based on his short story. I think he's quite good in. He did a really weird movie in 2001 called Novocaine, which I kind of liked. Um, but it's a lot of, you know, bringing down the house, cheaper by the dozen, Looney Tunes back in action, Pink Panther. He's kind of charming and it's complicated, which is a Nancy Myers movie, which is fine billy lynn's halftime walk he's kind of dreadful in it's just a bad movie and it's a badly written trite character Mm -hmm. and you know he'll show up on he'll show up and host saturday night live or he'll show up and do a guest spot on 30 rock and he's always great and stuff like that but his his film work i mean he's had hits but nothing really of consequence right nothing that nothing that can hold a candle to his work in the 80s and 90s the combination of like box office sensation and you know, well regarded that those days have passed him by. You know, he's not the biggest star in the world anymore where he can sort of pick and choose parts that are that are gonna actually work for him like he did in his younger years. I I think part of that's just like maybe he doesn't have the range to move into that Bill Murray supporting actor type of thing, right? He kinda has to always be a version of himself. He's a stand up comic at heart, right? So I, I I just think that maybe the roles passed him by, and he knows that if he writes for himself, like in Shop Girl and in Bowfinger, he can get something done. But, you know, not a bankable star, getting up there in age. I just, I just think uh, he decided to move on to other things and maybe take a paycheck here and there where, when necessary. I just really wish the third act would have crystallized for him. You know, like, yeah. I think, like, Billy Lynn's halftime, long halftime walk is not a good movie, but that is the kind of role that I want for him. Like, I want him to be pivoting into, you know, he's never been nominated for an Oscar. Alec Baldwin poked fun at that when they hosted the Oscars together one year. Yeah. He really, I mean, he's he's won an honorary Oscar, but he he should be writing more serious stuff, and he should be taking more serious supporting roles. And he, he tends to gravitate towards Pink Panther 2, you know, and Cheaper by the Dozen 3 or whatever. And that's that's really not what I want for him. Not that I'm his manager or his mom. It really does seem like the things he cares about are playing the banjo and touring. Yep. Writing books and short stories and plays or whatever. And hanging out with Martin Short. Hang out with Martin Short. And then when he gets, a, you know, a script across his desk and say, hey... Take uh take a month and do cheaper brother dozen two and we'll pay you two million dollars and he'll say okay I'll do that buys a lot of banjo strings exactly I don't think he really cares about uh, getting to the top of the box office anymore I wish he would have become the heir apparent to Billy Crystal and just been our Oscar host you know seven times like he was such a good reliable Oscar host and he's only he only did it a couple of times and I understand that that's a lot of work and a lot of bullshit but he was just such a steady hand and and maybe we could just switch out his his sidekick you know make it alec baldwin one year make it martin short one year i was so comfortable with him doing that i wish he would have embraced a little bit more again this is just me saying all the things that i want for steve martin that are clearly not important to him (laughs) no they're not important to him but i i mean he would be a way better version of billy crystal let's not say heir apparent (laughs) fair well different uh all right so yeah what's your relationship like with steve martin and where do you think that that this performance slash script kind of falls in his oeuvre. I was always a big fan growing up. I mean, my dad loved him. Uh, I used to listen to, you know, a couple of his comedy records uh, every now and then. Loved, absolutely loved The Jerk. Adored that movie. Watched it over and over again when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Big Planes, Trains, Automobiles fan. Sure. I I think that might be my favorite movie of his. Just, uh, I think it's the funniest. Okay. You know, I'm not, not a super fan. I do like The Spanish Prisoner, actually. He's 
excellent in that. He's so good. That is such an underrated movie. It really is one of one of Mammoth's best uh, work, actually. But you know, I I don't know. I I never have felt like, oh, where's Steve Martin? I, I I've enjoy I enjoy his appearances when he shows up, like you said, on Thirty Rock or various hosting gigs. But you know, the the way I look at him, it does seem fairly elegant, sort of recession into older age and, and and not sort of grasping for work or grasping for stardom. So I don't know. I, I feel I feel fine about everything, the way things have turned out. I always find it interesting when people like that, you know, move on to other things and are sort of virtuosic in other areas. And I, I'm glad that he decided that he was going to write. It's a lot harder to sit down and write a book than it is to you know, show up on set for a, for a cheaper by the dozen. So mm. the weird thing about talking on this context is I remember seeing Bowfinger for the first time. I saw it in the theater and I was super stoked about seeing it in the theater. Even as a youngster who this movie should have lined up for, I was kind of nonplussed by it. Mm. I thought, thought it was fine. thought it was a real easy watch, but, you know, it didn't really get me. And sitting down to watch it again uh, a few days ago, kind of felt the same way. I'm like, oh, this is enjoyable. This is good. Um, I'm not really laughing all that much. It's kind of a little broad and uh, sweet, but not in like, not in a complimentary way. This movie has such an innocence, and I feel like this is one of those last bastions of, uh, I know I said pre-9-11 earlier, I don't want to make a huge deal out of it, but it does feel like it's from a different time. A simpler time, sure. Yeah, I mean, th- there's something very kind of disposable about this movie. It, it, it's very yeah. simple, and I don't even necessarily use either of those term- terms pejoratively. Yeah, it's something kind of quaint about it, perhaps. Uh, exactly. Even while yeah. even even while experimenting with some of the darker humor that I think Frank Oz kind of specialized in. We'll, we'll we'll get to Oz. So let's go through Murphy now. Allegedly, the script was written for Keanu Reeves, which is a weird what? sort of alternate <laughs> reality to think about. But I feel like the fact that they pivoted to really put together something that would play to Eddie Murphy's strengths is kind of where the movie transcends for me. As somebody who's not as uh, an Eddie Murphy super fan or a completist or somebody who's who revisits many of his films, I think he really steals this movie. He has specialized in portraying multiple characters over the course of his career. That's really one of the things he does better than almost anybody. Mm-hmm. What I like so much about this film is that he portrays two characters, but he doesn't rely on any like weird prosthetics or anything particularly um, crass in order yeah. to distinguish these two characters, right? He plays twin brothers, and he makes two completely fleshed out characters out of them. But he does it all with physicality and you know vocal intonations and and character choices. Now they give him a goofy haircut and they give him some braces, which are pretty brilliant. But <laughs> I, it's mostly just him creating a character out of thin air, which I absolutely love. Like as somebody who's not a big Eddie Murphy fan, I think this is one of his best performances. And I find the character of Jif to be this movie's secret weapon. Like when Jif shows up, the movie just goes to another level for me. He's my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, I agree that Jif is <laughs> is the highlight. But I, you know, even further, I think any scene with Eddie Murphy in this movie is the best scene. I mean, he, he is definitely the highlight, and, and and you're right. Like these are less broad, more sort of intricate characters than anything you'll find in Nutty Professor or Coming to America or anything. And he's yeah, he's just super impressive. The the, the spectrum that these two characters are on. You can kind of think he's going back to the well in this Nutty Professor thing, but you know he did the same thing in in other films playing multiple characters. So I I don't know. Like it's it just makes sense to. To write this, and I and I don't think Keanu Reeves would have pulled it off with such a plum. It might um, be apocryphal. I think uh, I think that was an IMDb <laughs> trivia thing. It could have been a joke. I it, guess it could have d- um, d- yeah. d- during one of the fallow Keanu times when people were making fun of him. You know, yeah, because I mean, theoretically, even if this was written for Keanu, it would have been pre Matrix, right? Interesting. You, you see the news today, Matt? Right? I did. Yeah, I, they're they're going back to the Matrix, and it looks like it's just Lana, right? They didn't mention anything yeah. of Lily Wachowski, apparently. So this will be the first time they haven't directed something together, which is kind of interesting. I wonder what accounts for that. Well, the, the most exciting part of this is that one of the co-writers is David Mitchell, the, yes, the author of, of Cloud, Cloud Atlas. Atlas. Yes, I did. I did clock that, and that is extraordinarily exciting. Um, so yeah, I I really I am so impressed with Eddie Murphy in this movie, and maybe that's one of the reasons that I I defend it and want to go back to it and want to examine it and feel like it is one of the at least most important comedies of '99, if not the '90s, because I just think he's I just think he's exceptional, and there's so much kind of pathos 
that develops out of what could be an extraordinarily broad and silly character. I mean, it starts as an extraordinarily broad and silly character, and then it develops into something else. And his relationship with his brother and the fact that he's finally around people who um, who he feels like him for him as opposed to liking him for his relationship with somebody who's famous. I just think that's a really strong and interesting and kind of moving scene when they're all sitting around the table at the diner. The fact that Bobby Bowfinger is such kind of a dirtbag throughout this whole thing, the fact that he's willing to exploit this character, the fact that he's willing to steal Heather Graham's credit card for the purposes of getting this movie made. I mean, I think there's some really kind of bold and kind of brave choices they make with making his character pretty pretty despicable in a lot of ways right even though he has this magnetism that makes you understand why all these ne'er-do-wells would kind of gather around him and help do his bidding it's a weird feeling you get watching this movie because everything is played so innocently and so sweet and there's this huge dissonance between the tone and the way we're supposed to see bobby bowfinger and his actions right yeah. With, yeah. Take advantage, of, and that maybe that's what I mean. Like there, there are no consequences for him really being uh, a huge scumbag. Well, he's so pathetic. Yeah, I guess what you'd call the Z-grade producer, right? You know, Roger Corman or uh, Ed Wood would have looked down on Bobby Bowfinger, right? <laughs> Which <laughs> yeah, is saying yeah. something. I think this movie actually really has a lot in common with Ed Wood. It might make for an interesting double feature. Mm-hmm. But since you're talking about tone, then let's get to Frank Oz because yeah. I think this movie is so perfectly in line with his best work and I find it to be such an interesting filmmaker and I'm so disappointed by the fact that he wasn't able to keep this incredible streak going after this I mean he made probably the worst film of his career immediately after this and things have never been the same and that movie The Score that, that's one of the single most disappointing theatrical experiences I've ever had never seen it it's bad it's really bad I've been thinking a lot about Edward Norton recently because he has a film coming up later this year which may potentially prove to be his comeback knock on wood I don't want to jinx the guy but at the time in 2001 I guess the fact that Frank Oz was going to direct a movie with Marlon Brando Robert De Niro and Edward Norton, quite possibly the three most important actors of their respective generations. And it was going to be this heist in this bank robbery movie. And it just, and Frank Oz was coming off of the success of Bowfinger, but pivoting into something a little more dramatic. I just like, I, I could not have possibly been more excited slash disappointed when I finally saw the movie. But anyway, let's go back further. So obviously he comes out of the Muppets and out of Sesame Street. He was born in the UK. He moved to Oakland with his parents and uh, he gets involved with Jim Henson and the children's television workshop and kind of inadvertently ends up as a puppeteer because that's what his parents did. He wanted to be a playwright. He wanted to direct plays and he wanted to direct movies. So he, he eventually figured out a way to do that. Uh, I kind of get the impression reading his bio that he was never particularly happy with his place as a puppeteer, which is kind of interesting, right? Considering that he created, voiced, and embodied some of the most iconic puppets in the yeah. history of television and cinema. <laughs> in between Fozzie, Miss Piggy, Yoda, Rover, you know, Cookie Monster, like... I mean, he's responsible for so many of the most important puppets. I mean, maybe that maybe that's what made his performances so good is that he maybe thought he was too good for it. Maybe that maybe he was kind of a grouch, which maybe helped bleed into Yoda or something. I don't know. He's apparently kind of a prickly guy. You know, looking at what he's been doing the last ten years, it feels like he's kind of come out of that. He's he's been definitely willing to come back and do the Yoda thing. Yeah, both for George Lucas and uh, Ryan Johnson, right? You know, he directed a movie a couple of years ago about guys who did puppets. You know, talking about doing puppets so yeah he maybe he's come full circle and maybe he was humbled by his career in the 2000s from everything i've heard you know he's he's well liked but yes also a little bit prickly as you said yeah he's he's had some real run-ins over the course of his career and he's basically he's left multiple projects because of quote-unquote creative differences clashed with uh, richard dreyfus on the set of what about bob you know of course clashed with marlon brando on the set of the score so if you just look through his directorial career he obviously segues into direct as a result of his work with Jim Henson. And he and Jim Henson basically co-direct The Dark Crystal in 1982. Yeah. Kind of a cult classic, never a particularly important film for me, but important for a lot of people who grew up in the 80s and they're actually um, they're actually doing a Netflix series based on it now. It was on HBO a lot, I remember. Sure, sure. Freaked out a lot of kids who grew up in the 80s. And then he does The Muppets Take Manhattan, which is, I think, the third Muppet feature. Mm-hmm. Probably the fourth or fifth best Muppet feature, but perfectly fine. Uh, then he does Little Shop of Horrors, which I think is kind of, 
the platonic ideal of you. It might be his masterpiece because it's it's got everything, right? I mean, it's based on a fantastic musical. The songs are incredible. The puppetry of the Audrey 2 plant is just insane. I mean, it's fantastic. It's really funny. It's really dark. It's really scary. The romance between Rick Moranis and... uh, What's her name? Ellen Green is totally legit. It's got all these wonderful cameos from Steve Martin and Bill Murray and Christopher Guest. It's just a fantastic movie. And it's really, really dark. Scared the hell out of me as a kid. And when I've gone back to it subsequently, I've just been so impressed by the the technical acumen of uh, Frank Oz being able to direct these musical numbers, but then also completely understanding how to shoot this puppet at the center of the story. I mean, one could make the argument that he maybe was the only person who could bring something like that to the screen because of his background as a puppeteer. But I think it's significant that he's really drawn to this exceptionally dark material because then in something like What About Bob, that's a pretty damn dark movie as well, right? I mean, at the end of that movie, Richard Dreyfuss basically wires uh, Bill Murray up with with the dynamite right yeah it's a really dark movie <laughs> surprisingly so it's a great movie it's really funny it's probably one of bill murray's funniest performances it's also a movie about you know sort of obsession and insanity and then he does house sitter with steve martin which is not a great movie but was a hit and then he does in and out with kevin klein which ends up being a huge hit uh joan cusack gets oscar nominated for it it's kind of this big phenomenon i haven't watched it recently does it does it stand up i haven't seen it in years i okay. would be interested in revisiting it it's, it's kind of based on tom hanks Hanks's Oscar acceptance speech when he won for Philadelphia, outing his high school teacher, I believe, as homosexual. Yeah. So it's a we- it's kind of a weird jumping off point for a movie. I'd be interested I to wonder, see how. I wonder it- how woke it seems. Exactly. I'd be interesting to look at it in, in today's context. And then Bowfinger after that, and that's basically his '90s. And then, as I said, the score comes along two years later. It's terrible. It's a flop. Does the Stepford Wives, which is a kind of an ill-advised remake. He does that movie Death at a Funeral. Kind of a funny movie. Has a has its moment. Has a great Peter Dinklage performance. Alan Tudyk is very good in it. It's kind of a clever setup, but it's not a particularly good movie. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty much it. And then he did the, you know, like you mentioned, the Muppet Guys talking documentary, which I've never actually seen. I kind of want to watch it now, actually. Yeah. I want to hear Frank Oz talk. I'm into the subject matter. But I guess my point through all of this is that he's he's kind of drawn to this darker more twisted stuff and even as he's making you know pg-13 movies or movies with puppets he's not afraid to kind of get into things that are you know somewhat twisted somewhat dark and really i think maybe the comedic set piece that bowfinger's kind of remembered for is actually a really dark kind of twisted joke that's what i was thinking while watching it this time and i didn't realize that as a kid and it's crazy to think that that was like it was the main thing in the trailers yeah i was reading that the uh the studio i don't know if you saw this trivia but the studio wanted to cut that scene and not film it for budgetary reasons steve martin was insistent because he says it's the funniest scene in the movie he's not wrong i was it's funny. I was kind of disturbed by it. So basically, they make, uh, they force young, you know, poor innocent Jif to run across four lanes of uh, of a freeway under the guise that the uh, the cars he's avoiding are actually stunt drivers, which of course they're not. It's pretty scary and it's pretty disturbing and it's quite funny because Eddie Murphy really commits to it. But mm-hmm. it is, it's far and away the darkest scene in, in what's for the most part a pretty kind of sweet and innocent film. I probably saw this movie three times in the theater and it mm-hmm. always got the biggest reaction from the audience. I mean, there's one brilliant piece of comic timing where Jif makes it across the street. He's, you know, crying and he and he's blathering and everybody's telling him what a great job he did. And he's saying he just wants to go run errands and he's going to go to Starbucks. And then Steve Martin's like, yes, you can do that after you do this one more time. And then there's just a perfectly timed cut to him right back in the middle of the freeway again. And that that got the biggest <laughs> laugh in the whole movie. Yeah. Credit to Steve Martin for knowing how important that was going to be to this movie comedically and for Frank Oz you know, shooting it and cutting it pretty much perfectly. I mean, there's there's this incredible one shot. You know, it starts in like a telephoto frame of Eddie Murphy across the freeway, and then it basically just pulls back to reveal the entire freeway, and he runs across the whole thing. Now, of course, all of the cars are CG, but the um, effectiveness of the shot is still pretty incredible. Do you think Frank Oz at this point has just decided not to direct anymore? Do you think he just can't get anything off the ground? Or It, it seems like he could do stuff if he wanted to, but it's, it's been forever now. Well, I think it's a combination of things. I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's kind of like this somewhat obnoxious refrain that we keep going back to, which is that they just don't make those kinds of movies anymore, right? I mean, yeah, yeah when was the last time we made a movie like Bowfinger? I think his sort of lane has sort of disappeared. 
I think he has a kind of a prickly reputation. You know, he has a reputation for being kind of prickly on set and maybe being a little bit difficult to work with unless you're, you know, one of his boys like Steve Martin. And yeah, I think he's maybe just aged out a little bit, unfortunately. And he's had too many clunkers in a row. I mean, I think Death at a Funeral was probably a modest hit, but he hasn't made a good movie since Bowfinger. That was 20 years ago. I think Disney went to him when they wanted to reboot the Muppet franchise. From the research I was doing, it was basically between his idea and Jason Siegel's idea, and it sounds like they went with Jason Siegel, and I don't know if they still offered Frank Oz the ability to direct that movie, or if he, his ego was, you know, because they went with Jason Siegel that he wouldn't direct it if they weren't going to use his idea. I'm, I'm just kind of speculating about this. Yeah. But it was it was clearly a younger, fresher, sexier idea to use Jason Siegel's script, you know, a director coming out of uh, Flight of the Concords, right? It made that movie more more hip, right? Well, probably just better. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, maybe Frank Oz would have made his Muppet masterpiece finally. <laughs> you know, Muppet's Take Manhattan is fine, but I don't. Th- I think the Jason Siegel Muppet movie is better. Yeah, well, I think the Jason Siegel Muppet movie is uh, maybe the second best of all of them. Yeah, second or third, I'd say. I'm I'm pretty partial to the first two uh, Muppet movie and then the Great Muppet Caper, but I, I think the Jason Siegel one's pretty strong. You want to talk a little bit about Eddie Murphy and where this was in, in his career and where he went afterwards? I mean, it's, like we said, it's kind of the end of the era for him, the end of his, uh, you know, second act ascent, I guess. I mean, he, he kept doing, he did Night Professor 2 afterwards and Shrek uh, immediately afterwards. But I don't know. I, I tend not to count these voice this voice work in terms of like a career arc. Yeah, I mean, I would say if we're going to demarcate, I guess we could call this the end of the second act. That would mean the second act was actually very brief, like Nutty Professor to Bowfinger. It's only about three years, right? Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's true. It was sort of, it was downhill. You know, Distinguished Gentleman, Boomerang, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and Vampire in Brooklyn before Nutty Professor starts. So he was in a fallow period for sure. Sure, Nutty Professor was a huge hit. It was an absolute phenomenon. And then I never saw Metro, but I think Metro is just him attempting to try and recapture, you know, like if if the Nutty Professor is him sort of recapturing Coming to America or whatever, then Metro is him trying to recapture Beverly Hills Cop. Let's call the second act from Nutty Professor all the way to Dreamgirls. Gotcha, which was supposed to be the movie that he would finally win his Oscar for. Yes. And he famously lost to... That wasn't the Mark Rylance year. No, no. Who did he lose to? I know it was an upset. You, you vamp, I'll look it up. 2009 or 2008? 2007. 2007, dang. God, that's a long yeah. time ago. Which was a rough year. That's that's the departed year. Oh, he loses to Alan Arkin. That's right. Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes Which sense. Which is a bit of a controversial one. I'm a Little Miss Sunshine defender, but that's tough. I as well. And, but Jennifer <laughs> Hudson wins in that same movie. She does. She does at that. But Eddie Murphy famously is so incensed that he gets upset that he apparently just stood up and left the ceremony after that. Oh, boy. Could be apocryphal, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past the guy. I I feel I feel he was quite confident in himself. I mean, he'd won the Golden Globe by that point, so I don't blame him. And so after that, it's been all downhill. There's been nothing really of note for Eddie until maybe this year. Dolomite is my name. Is is that right. the comeback? Did you see the trailer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's always got that Shrek stuff to fall back on, so he's not hurting. But yeah, everything else. I mean, look at that. Meet Dave. Imagine that. Tower Heist. A thousand words. <laughs> Mr. Church. Again, I think that sort of reinforces the idea that, you know, with all due respect to Shrek and Dr. Doolittle, I really feel like he has faltered since Bowfinger. You know, he was Oscar nominated for Dreamgirls, so credit where it's due. I just don't think he's really been all that relevant in the last 20 years. And now he's got Dolomite is My Name, which is supposed to be another comeback. We'll see if that works out. looks like it's something that he's perfect for. Mm-hmm. And maybe he will finally win his Oscar this year. But after that, he's got Coming to America, Coming to America. And then he has Beverly Hills Cop 4. And then he also has Triplets in the Pipeline, which is supposed to be the sequel to Twins, right? Yeah. So we'll see. I don't know. I mean, his performance in Bowfinger is kind of like the platonic ideal of what I want out of Eddie Murphy. But I think that's coming from a place of not being an Eddie Murphy expert or super fan. Certainly not one of his most iconic characters or iconic films. But according to him, one of the films in his oeuvre that he considers the funniest, apparently he's quite proud of this movie and thinks it's just absolutely loves Steve Martin's script. Yeah, I mean, Eddie Murphy is such an... I find him to be a pretty interesting guy. It does feel like he brings his A-game when he's around 
people he respects more so than otherwise. Otherwise, his, sure. he'll just he'll be happy to take a check. Did you happen to read that Playboy interview with Eddie Murphy that kind of resurfaced like a month or so ago? I don't read the articles. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm not familiar with that, uh, but please, uh, by all means, paraphrase. Everyone, you should go read this. This is from, I want to say, the mid-late 80s. It's basically pages of him talking about John Landis and coming to America. And it is batshit insane, uh, the (laughs) stories he's telling about John Landis. Both John Landis being an asshole and kind of a psycho, and also Eddie Murphy being a psycho in response to him. Like yeah, him beating the shit out of John Landis and them having crazy shouting matches and it's you know it's all about it's, it's a lot of macho stuff and uh, huh. stuff about respect but it, it's sort of a cool insight into into Eddie Murphy and maybe understanding his career a little bit better because yeah it kind of is about who he respects and, and what he's up to and uh, you know he's willing to just take a paycheck and he doesn't often get all that excited about the stuff he's in now I'm just imagining uh, Eddie Murphy and John Landis and Charlie Murphy and um, Rick James and Prince doing a lot of coke and yeah. you know play, playing basketball and eating yeah. pancakes and yeah I bet there were some crazy parties there circa yeah. you know 84 85 86 yeah Rick James is definitely mentioned in this in this article so <laughs> good ch- check out this interview uh, you know it's funny we hadn't even brought that up how about just sort of like the meta aspects of the GIF character kind of echoing Charlie Murphy right yeah yeah Absolutely. I mean, you know, <laughs> Eddie Murphy is clearly in the character of Kit Ramsey. He's clearly very self-effacingly and very, I think, kind of bravely sort of lampooning his own persona a little bit, right? Yeah, definitely. And we haven't even talked about his relationship with the Laker girls, which I think is <laughs> one of the most brilliant aspects of this movie. In, you know, Eddie Murphy in a trench coat with a bag over his head, exposing himself to the Laker girls, them laughing at him running away and saying, it's not funny, is just one of the you know endearing comedic moments of this film for me. <laughs> and it kind of comments on some of the things he got arrested for in the 80s and 90s and, you know, picking up certain solicitors on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, he has he, he has a bit of a record, let's say. Yeah. Maybe, maybe certain things have been expunged, but I do think this movie uh, parodies his um, extracurricular activities a little bit. Yes, it does. And in that regard, I feel like Jif is kind of an, maybe an interesting commentary, intentional or not, on his brother Charlie, who obviously was never as famous as he was and really didn't become a household name until The Chappelle Show, right? Yeah, and you wonder how much of that was written into the original script by Steve Martin, how much was on purpose, and whether Eddie Murphy came in and wanted to make it more like his and his brother's persona. That would be an interesting potential point of contention if Eddie Murphy's reading this. Like, are you making fun of me for liking hookers, you know? Well, they they soften it. They, they <laughs> sort of round off the rough edges by making it the Laker girls, yeah, which, I again, I think is just fucking brilliant. <laughs> Terrence Stamp instructing him not to expose himself to the Laker girls. I just, for some reason, that just really tickles me. And didn't Charlie Murphy kind of have a little bit of a B-movie career? Am, am I just projecting that he went to Asia and made, like, bad action films? Let me look that up while you talk. Okay. I think that's a good thing to because this movie ends with them going over to, um, I think they go to Taiwan to make B action films. Kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of just like a, it's like they felt they needed a coda and, and that's fine. It, it works. But yeah, I just, I, I just like thinking of, of Jif as kind of a bit of a commentary on the innocence and the supportiveness of Charlie Murphy. Yeah, Charlie Murphy looks like he did a lot of uh, B, C movies. He's fairly prolific and I don't recognize any of these titles. wonder if he was ever in a movie with Frank Stallone. He was uh, in two movies in the thugaboo franchise (laughs) of course he was um another point in this movie's favor uh nice and short it is yeah it's like 93 minutes with a bullet or something which which more comedy should aspire to be i just don't think we give frank oz enough credit for just being one of the great comedy directors of the last 30 years little shop of horrors is probably you know creatively his masterpiece but i really feel like what about oh you know we didn't even mention um it, it slipped through the cracks. Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is a great comedy. Bad remake came out earlier this year we don't need to discuss, but I mean, it's not a bad idea to remake that movie. It Actually, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is already a remake mm-hmm. of a French film. I, I love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I think Michael Caine is just brilliant in that movie and so funny. And uh, Glenn Headley. And so, yeah, I just think he's nothing flashy, right? But that's almost part of his appeal well, is he's just an incredibly competent comedic director. And regardless of how simple or kind of disposable you may find this film, 
it's extraordinarily competently directed. For sure. And, you know, like we talked about with What About Bob, both that and this movie, the tone belies the sort of darker themes prevalent underneath. There's sort of some Trojan horse, really dark shit going on. You're still laughing about it because of the way, way he directs it. But 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 also that, that kind of sort of speaks to this era of comedy that sort of died. The popular comedies start becoming, you know, your wedding crashers, your hangovers, and then you get into the Apatow land. So the movie feels like a relic, and it's crazy that I can't really think of anything that kind of comes close to this in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, I think this stuff kind of comes in waves. You know, all those, a lot of those R-rated comedies that sort of came to prominence in the mid you know, aughts, you couldn't get away with anymore, right? I mean, you could never get away with Wedding Crashers today. And honestly, I I have a hard time imagining the hangover really working today. So we're now in this weird, we're we're sort of in this transitional kind of woke period where we're trying to figure out what comedy can be and what comedy can get away with and how much we should litigate comedy and how much what's coming out of the mouths of the characters is an expression of what's, you know, what the screenwriter thinks or what the director thinks. I mean, it's kind of a dangerous tough time out there for comedy yeah, these days, right? I'm, you know... Or am I, am I just being too dramatic? You know, I, need, I need to... Or- being too dramatic about comedy. Yeah, I need to organize my thoughts a little more on this, but... <laughs> we don't need to litigate it here, necessarily. Well, well, I think it's important because... I think it's just maybe the it's just harder to make a good comedy because you can't rely on sort of crassness or, or shock shit anymore. I mean, we, we've seen hard R-rated comedies be very good recently and, and not problematic, you know, so to speak. Booksmart came out this year hard R rating, nothing wrong with it, and it's fantastic, right? I haven't actually seen Good Boys yet, but its I think it's significant that Good Boys basically recreates the freeway scene from this movie. Oh, really? Like, from what I've seen <laughs> from the trailers, it just completely rips off that scene yeah. from, and it gets a big it gets a big response when you watch that trailer in a theater, but it looks like it's completely ripping off the scene from Bowfinger. We rewatched Superbad a couple weeks back, and that movie holds up, and nothing too, nothing problematic. I mean, that, that movie would fly these days. Uh, maybe. Yeah, they 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 drop the f word a lot, and I'm not. I don't mean fuck. You know, like there's some. Yeah. There's a little bit of gay panic going on in that movie. I'm not sure you get away with today. Maybe, maybe a little um, bit. But but I do think it's I do think it's interesting that Booksmart and Good Boys, which came out within two months of each other, are essentially trying to appropriate the super bad formula with women and younger characters (laughs) and young boys yeah (laughs) so when i came out of this film after seeing it on the universal lot in july of 99 we walked to the commissary we were all just flying high on how much we enjoyed this thing and we ran into this dude and we got to talking to him and he said yeah i'm I'm a director you know you know we were just like all these kind of like starstruck high school film geek Mm -hmm. types and we were just wanting to know. He's like, yeah, my name, you know, what, what's your name? Have you done anything we, we would have seen? He's like, yeah, you know, I've made, made a couple movies, you know, directed Nutty Professor, directed Ace Ventura, directed Liar Liar, <laughs> directed Patch Adams. So they're like, yeah, Tom Shadjack, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he so he's hanging out at the Universal Commissary and we're all like, oh, my God, Tom Shadjack, he, you know, Liar Liar was pretty fresh at this point, uh-huh. which I think is actually a as somebody who's not a big um you know, Jim Carrey guy and someone who would never think to really go back and revisit Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, The Mask or anything. I actually kind of like Liar Liar. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, he's hanging out and he's obviously just there on like some sort of development deal with Universal, right? Yeah. And this is in the summer of 99. So I guess he's coming off of Patch Adams, which is a bad movie, but was a hit. He doesn't make another movie until 2002 where he makes a bad Kevin Costner movie called Dragonfly, yeah. which I'm sure nobody remembers, right? <laughs> so I think that actually sort of feeds into what we're discussing, which is that we were sort of about to hit a fallow period or some sort of transitional period where the stuff that was working in the late 90s, the stuff that, you know, the comedic phenomenons, whether it was your Tom Shadjack stuff or whether it was your Fairly Brothers stuff, was about to kind of hit a wall. Yeah. And I'm not saying Bo, I'm not saying Bowfinger is the movie or Bowfinger is, is like the transitional moment necessarily. But it's but there might be yeah. something to, yeah, there, it might be instructive because Tom Shadjack, that's pretty much it. I mean, he, he does Bruce Almighty, which ends up being actually a, a quite a big hit, but then he follows it up with Evan Almighty, which is a legendary flop, right? And he hasn't really, he hasn't really had a hit since. He wrote some book or did some documentary about some weird subject. Okay. Also, I, I, I need to call you out for putting this on our retrospectating list, doing this whole Bowfinger thing just so you could tell your Tom Shadiac story. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me until right now, honestly. <laughs> but that's it, absolutely, it's 100% true. I, I'm, I've, we literally ran into Tom Shadjack. That's not exactly a Starfucker story. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Most, it's not Tom Shadjack's not a, uh, he's not a household name, but I think it's significant. I mean, he would have been at his high. I mean, this is two years after the 
nutty professor and this is one year after liar liar so he, he would have been at his height at that point so if ever there was a time that a bunch of 16 year olds would recognize the name tom shadjack it would have been right then he wrote a self-help book called life's operating manual no good for him he, he has thoughts he's got thoughts <laughs> Real quickly, just to wrap this up, Heather Graham is in this. Yes, she is. A couple years after uh, Boogie Nights, and she's kind of having a moment, right? I mean, this is, and this is the same year as The Spy Who Shagged Me. So she's really having herself a year. Yeah. She is allegedly, she is allegedly based on Anne Heche. Is, you know, Hollywood legend that, that Steve Martin based her on Anne Heche, um, who he apparently had a brief romance with. Apparently she was kind of working her way through various people who had power at the time, maybe culminating with um, Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, don't want to speculate slan- at all. This is slanderous. Slanderous, but uh, the whole Ellen DeGeneres thing. This is all conjecture. It is It is kind of interesting that she she does end up with quote-unquote one of the most powerful lesbians in Hollywood at the end of the movie. Here, This is interesting. This is something you couldn't get away with today, but I do think it's one of the most interesting sort of comedic gambles the movie takes the mexican day laborers yeah that was that was border. actually striking while watching it it's like oh that's hilarious there's cartoonish guns going off in the background while they pick up a bunch of day laborers yeah it's an indefensible joke now but what i will say indefensible <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. you can't you can't do that man the payoff i think is fucking hilarious the fact that these guys end up being incredible cinematographers that they like pick up the skill so quickly that they're getting phone calls from francis ford coppola by the end of the movie <laughs> i find that fucking hysterical and the fact that one of them is one of them sitting there in bowfinger's house reading Kaye du cinema which is a real deep cut you know cinephile joke mm-hmm. i i don't know i find all that stuff quite adorable but that scene that scene where he picks him up on the border is pretty rough it's very rough yes um and then robert Downey jr shows up here and what basically amounts to a cameo and it kind of makes you wonder how much of that had to do with the fact that this is when he is at his low point right and if he's not at his low point he's about to hit his low point yeah he, he can barely get insured on any movie right like he's uh not a good time for mr downey but he's he's fun in his cameo this comes right after u.s marshall's in dreams i think wonder boys is the year after this mm-hmm. which he's excellent in but i think at that point he goes on a downward spiral he ends up having to go on to well having to go on to he ends up going on to alan mcbeal to sort <laughs> yeah, of oh, try <laughs> he ends up going on alan mcbeal to try and like repair his reputation a little bit goes off on a bender and then they end up firing him and killing him off that show and i think that's when he ends up getting arrested for like falling asleep in his neighbor's kid's bed or something right yeah. when he's on screen he's fucking magic he's robert right? I mean, Jr. He's charming you as see hell. yeah you see no you see no indication you know when the camera's rolling you see no indication of what he was going through off camera uh and then terrence stamp and barry newman both show up both of whom would be would play significant roles in the limey two months later they're both great barry newman plays eddie uh, kit ramsey's agent and then terrence stamp plays his minehead handler i guess yeah Yeah. and he's great because terrence stamp never gets to do comedy and he's he's excellent in this movie yeah i'd like to see more terrence stamp comedy roles yeah minehead is a great name <laughs> for this it cult. Is. I mean that that's one of my yeah. favorite things about this movie. Yeah, I like I like everything about Mindhead. One of my favorite just complete throwaway gags, which might be my favorite joke in the entire movie when they're auditioning Jif. Uh would you be willing to cut your hair? Yes, but it's usually better if someone else does. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> such a stupid Steve Martin joke, <laughs> it's, but it's perfect. Yeah, it's really good. And I remember that being a big part of the trailer too. Yes, exactly. That was a trailer joke. And then at one point Jamie uh, Kennedy mentions to um, Steve Martin that uh, there's no way they're going to be able to make this movie. Movies cost millions and millions of dollars. Steve Martin says, "That's after gross net deduction profit percentage deferment and 10% of the nut cash every movie costs two thousand one hundred eighty four dollars <laughs> yeah every movie love that before you read the entire script matt yes yes uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up those are just some of my favorite quotes from the film you want to uh tease our our very next uh retrospectating podcast uh yeah we got a big one coming up here but really quickly before i get to that just dancing through things we jumped over in august uh do you have thoughts about dick the movie dick well this was in a period where i was in love with kirsten dunst so and also in love with will ferrell in a different way yeah i I was into that movie i don't think i've seen it in 15 years though i love that you were in love with kirsten dunst and will ferrell but jumped right over michelle williams you're a dunst guy well i was a katie holmes guy and Dunst guy. Ah, fair you're a joey guy the iron giant comes out on the same 
day as the Sixth Sense in 1989. It's become kind of a beloved. It, it's crazy, even called a cult classic. It a lot of people just consider it to be a straight up animated classic. It's you know it's Brad Bird's directorial debut. That's a movie I didn't see for a couple of years after. I mean, I I did not see it in the theater. I think I saw it in like school or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was not on my radar until years later when it was being kind of reevaluated as a modern classic. It's it's sort of significant in that it basically lays the track for Vin Diesel becoming Groot, right? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of <laughs> playing the movie's great <laughs> legacy, for sure. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really fun movie. I feel like it is one of the most beloved films of 99, weirdly. Uh, Mystery Men. Thoughts about Mystery Men? Uh, I definitely saw it opening night. Was super into it. I realized my my youthful folly in really liking <laughs> that movie. But I, uh, I I enjoy that that movie exists. I think it's a good idea for a movie. Kind of the the opposite of, of The Boys, which just uh, came out on Amazon, which people really seem to like. And yeah, I just watched the the pilot for last night. I thought it was great. I've never seen it. Uh, there's a lot of people who swear by it. You've never seen Mystery I've Men? I've never seen Mystery Men, no. I was working at the movie theater that summer, so I have no excuse to not have caught it during my lunch break. But uh, some, of, it, some of Paul Rubin's finest work. Well, especially because, you know, that movie, of course, gave us Hey, now you're an all-star by Smash Mouth, right? I mean, that's that movie's legacy. <laughs> and it didn't Mick G or one of those guys direct that music video? Somebody. Uh, Mick G would, that, that, that would make out. sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally checks out. <laughs> okay, now here's two films from the same director that came out the same month The Thomas Crown Affair and The 13th Warrior. Wow. Now, we are not going to cover these movies in the 99 retrospective because we will be covering them in our upcoming McTiernan series. But how crazy is that, that quite possibly one of his best movies, or at least one of his biggest hits, comes out with the film of his that exists the least? Yeah. You know, like maybe the biggest flop. You know, I don't think that, you know, the Thomas Crown Affair is necessarily one of his best, but I do think it's one of his most high profile. It was was a legitimate hit. And then The 13th Warrior is just a legendary flop. Yeah. Came out within two weeks of each other. Crazy. So yeah, so that's it for August. This was during the Sixth Sense reign. Yeah, you know, exactly. as we as we discussed last episode, Sixth Sense was crushing everybody. Exactly, Sixth Sense just absolutely owned August. Uh, Bowfinger came out August thirteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Cost fifty five million. Did about ninety nine worldwide. Perfectly respectable hit, 81 on Rotten Tomatoes. And then that brings us to September. And, uh, of course, the most important movie to come along in September of 1999, Chill Factor, with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Skeet Ulrich, right? <laughs> yeah, Chill Factor. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, God, Stigmata. You, Stigmata is the most important Stigmata. movie to come out. You brought up a handful of movie names during this podcast that have just been crazy flashbacks to oh, yeah. watching my square TV back in the day. This is incredible. That's part of what this uh, series is all about, my friend. Um, no. We got to talk about American Beauty, which came out on uh, September 15th, 1999, became an instant phenomenon and went on to win Best Picture. And we'll be covering that here in a couple weeks because how could we not? How could we not? It's going to be it's going to be an iffy one. It's going to be a weird one. But I think we can get through it. We're pros. Until next time, this has been We Like Movies Retrospectating 1999. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye.